Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. In today's episode, I sit down with historian Carrie Greenidge to talk about her book, The Grim Keys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, published by LiveRight in November 2022. We recorded this interview at the annual bioconference in New York City on May 20th, 2023. Who are the Grim Keys? The Grim Keys are a multiracial family that was active between roughly the 1830s and the 1920s in Charleston, which was where the white Grimkeys were originally from, um, Washington, D.C., which is where the black Grimkeys migrated, and Boston and New York City. Uh, the Grimke sisters were famous abolitionist women um, who were the first to link in a popular imagination the cause of women's rights with the cause of the end of slavery. They became famous in the 1830s for speaking before the public on political themes. Um, their brother, Henry, had children with an enslaved woman named Nancy Weston. And those three sons from that coupling, uh, Archibald, Francis, and Frank, went on to become leaders in the black community in the turn of the century. But we don't hear about the black side of the family. We really do just hear about the two white sisters. Yes. Right. Why do you think that is? I think that is because we tend to separate the two stories. We tend to see the two stories as in conflict with one another. Those two stories being the Grim white Grimke sisters being saviors and being uh, women's rights activists, which they were or the white Grimkeys being slaveholders and having implications in slaveholding, which they did. And both of those things, my book argues, can exist at the same time. And they did exist at the same time in many families. So I think that's often hard for historians and uh, scholars of history to really understand, which is that in one family, as in one nation, these two things could exist at the same time. A theme that came up for me in this book was this idea of family and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the interesting points that you sort of touch on is this idea that, well, we did good in the past, so we don't have to continue doing good. Or we did that thing, we checked the box, and we've moved forward. Tell me a little bit more about that dichotomy or that situation. Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it. I think that particularly for the Grimke sisters, the Grimke women, Sarah and Angelina, they were anti-slavery activists. They were women who fundamentally believed women should have an equal say and a public position within just the general uh, American field. Um, And yet they came from a slaveholding family and it was slavery that made it possible for them to have the careers that they had. And so those two things existed um, alongside each other for them as, as women and for them and their generation. And they did do good things. Um, and yet they had this 
this very complicated, um, at times exploitative relationship to the black people who were in their own household. And when their nephews were born, those nephews um, sort of became a symbol of that conflict. And the nephews themselves also became a symbol of the conflict that can exist within black families about relationship to uh, white ancestors, but also relationships to the African-American community generally. So you could be, it was possible for the white Grimke sisters to do a lot of good and still have a problematic relationship with black people, just as it was um, possible for the Grimke brothers to do a lot of good, founding the NAACP, and yet have a very complicated relationship with African-American people. Correct, and you touch on this idea that they move to, let's say, a sundown town, Mm -hmm. right? And although they might be advocates for the black cause, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, they're certainly not speaking up to these other injustices that are going on right under their nose. Yes, so so one of the things I wanted to point out in the book is that the Grimke sisters themselves, um, Angelina Grimke had three children. Those children had a, a, had a weird or problematic relationship to activism, um, at one point being both enthusiastic about anti-slavery, but also being sort of ambivalent about it as well. And they had a lot of other things going on in the family. Uh, one child who had a severe mental illness, another child who was the only girl in the family and put in responsibility. And so I really wanted to show how activism doesn't necessarily translate across a generation, right? Just because a parent or parents are sincere um, activists in one generation doesn't always translate to those their children being activists. And so what did that then mean that um, the Angelina Grimke's granddaughter, also named Angelina, a lot of Angelinas, um, becomes a woman who, by all intents and purposes, was an activist in her own career, and it was very blind to civil rights, black people who might live uh, around her, and, and the ri- racial violence that occurred sort of all around her. And the acknowledgement that she has black people in her own family. Exactly, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. What brought you to write this biography? Well, I came across the Grimke family a lot when I was in graduate school and then when I wrote my first book. They always appeared in the black press, in the white press. And so I just took little notes on the side of like paper that there they are again. They keep on coming up and it would be for everything. It would be for them having a birthday party. It would be for them, you know, writing a book. It would be for uh, Archie graduating from Harvard Law School. And... For a family that was so ubiquitous, sort of just in sort of the black consciousness, and then for the Grimke sisters, the white Grimke sisters who were so ubiquitous in the anti-slavery consciousness a generation before, I knew that there had to be a story there that would link them all together and not see them as the white Grimkes or the black families, but see them more as um, this continuous story about slavery and its aftermath. So how did your work on your biography of William Monroe Trotter inform your work on this biography? I really wanted to concentrate on the perils and um, liabilities of being an activist, a black activist. What does it mean to actually be at the forefront of a struggle for uh, racial justice? And so... Trotter was at the forefront of that, and he paid definitely a price for being at the head of that. Um, The Grimke brothers were also in the same circles, and yet they had a very different relationship to activism than Trotter had. And so I think Trotter really allowed me to see the Grimke brothers, um, both in terms of their brilliance, but also in terms of their... um, the way that they uh, tended to not link their personal lives to their public activism, whereas Trotter was somebody who definitely could not separate the two. He, he linked his activism with his self. 
we know enough about the Grim, the white Grimke sisters yeah. to write novels and to write, you know, yes. all the things. But tell me about the black side of the family. So the black side of the family, um, Archibald Grimke was the oldest brother. He's born enslaved in Charleston in 1849. His younger brother, Francis Grimke, was born in 1850, also enslaved. And their younger brother, Frank, was born in 1852. By the end of the Civil War, um, during the Civil War, they experienced sort of very uh, cruel violence at the hands of their half-brother. So this would be the white Grimke sisters' nephew. And after the Civil War, their mother, who was enslaved, named Nancy Weston, allows them uh, and pushes for them to make their way north, so to follow the Union Army north and to get an education. As a result, Frank and Archie went to Lincoln University, an all-black university in Pennsylvania, and then Archie went on to Harvard Law School, and Frank went on to Princeton Theological Seminary. So they quickly sort of ascend these ranks of what W.E.B. Du Bois called the Talented Tenth. They become um, leaders in Washington, D.C., where Frank settles, also in Boston, where Archie settles. Um, Frank becomes minister and pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church, which was the leading black church in the country at the moment, at the time. Um, and Archie becomes the father to a very famous black woman, queer woman playwright named Angelina Grimke, his daughter. And so they are within the public imagination, particularly amongst African-American people and the talented 10th. Um, Archie wrote several books himself about uh, history, and Archie served in the Cleveland administration as an ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Um, so they were sort of definitely had these, um, would be seen as kind of this rags to riches story that we like to tell in the United States. And yet they have, as I, as I mentioned before, a relationship with, with other black people that was often discriminatory that really mirrored the relationship that their white aunts had with black people. And Archie's relationship to his own daughter, who became a brilliant Harlem Renaissance era playwright, Angelina Grimke, you know, published hundreds and hundreds of poems, began publishing and writing poems when she's like seven years old, um, just sort of this incredible mind. And yet, in the eyes of her father, she could never live up to the ideas of racial respectability. So um, she had affairs with women from a very early age, from the time she was like 12 years old, 13 years old. And of course, this was not something her family liked. Um, she was a poet and a writer, another thing her family didn't like. She really... Um, ask questions about their family past um, that, you know, uh, they did not want to be asked. And so within the Black Grimke family, I really want to look at how did their experience, the brothers' experience as being enslaved, inform the way that they then reacted to their lives after enslavement, right? What did it mean that they reached these heights of achievement? And yet Archibald Grimke, for instance, marries a white woman, and that woman took his child, and he, the child was two, this is Angelina who becomes the poet, takes her to Michigan, and he doesn't see her for five years. Um, what does it mean that Frank Grimke married a brilliant woman named Charlotte Fortin, and when he marries her, she is actually the more well-known one because she had written for the Atlantic, she had uh, become a teacher, and yet he is a man you know, has a conflict with her being sort of the public face of their relationship. And so I really want to delve into not just the exceptionalism of them, but really sort of the reality of what their lives were like. So to what extent did the white side of the family and the black side of the family associate? So initially, the white Grimke sisters 
did associate with Archibald and Frank, their nephews. They are in the latter years of their life. The Grimke sisters were living in Massachusetts when they read a newspaper article that um, talked about the Grimke brothers' academic performance at Lincoln. And so that's when they first, in their minds, realized that they have these nephews. Um, Angelina Grimke wrote to the nephews and eventually asked that the nephews, if she could meet them, she meets them. They end up supporting the nephews to go to Lincoln, so they pay for their college. But as I described in the book, that relationship quickly deteriorates in a very sort of unique way. Frank Grimke really becomes um, estranged from them, although he always respects them and sort of publicly, you know, calls them saints and says that they, they did much to rescue he and his brothers. Um, Archibald Grimke goes to Harvard Law School. The Grimke sisters and um, Anna, uh, Angelina Grimke's husband, Theodore Weld, pay for, in part for him to go there. And yet the letters back and forth between them are often filled with judgment, um, often filled with a racial stereotype, um, often filled with the Grimke sisters lacking compassion for the fact that the brothers were enslaved to their family. And then after that occurs, Angelina Grimke died in the 1870s, Sarah Grimke died. Um, the biggest contact that they had and continued to have between the white and black sides of the family was between Archibald Grimke and occasionally Angelina Grimke's children who were, who were white. One was living in um, Michigan and Illinois at the time. To what extent did you interview the ancestors of these people? Um, and to what extent do you have a relationship with the survivors of this family? Well, I don't have a relationship with the survivors of the family. The Black Grimkeys do not have, as far as I know, any living relatives. So Archibald had one daughter, Angelina. She did not have children. Frank had one child who died in infancy, so no children. And um, their youngest brother did not have any children, as far as I can know. So there are no survivors of the Black side of the family. The White Grimke family intermarried with various prominent families in South Carolina, in you know the Drayton family. Um, Edward Ball, a historian, came out with a book called uh, Slaves in the Family. That Ball family is related to the Grimke family. Um, I did not get in contact with that side of the family, more mostly because the story ends in 1950 um, when Angelina Well Grimke dies. And I really wanted to look at the dynamics of the Grimke sisters and their relationship um, to the brothers and sort of what happened after the Civil War. This is a family biography. What, are, what were some of the challenges that you faced in writing a group biography? One of the challenges was making sure that I paid as much attention as possible to members of the family who in the archive were referred to as not being the main center of the story, but who nevertheless had an impact on the lives. So an example would be Angelina Grimke, one of the Grimke sisters, had a son named Theodore who had various mental health issues in the 1840s, 1850s, and everyone sort of ignored him and never talked about him in their letters. And yet, when you look at the other letters and other sort of documents, he lived with the family until he was institutionalized as a grown man. And so what impact might that have had on the family that they have this child who becomes a grown man who has various uh, mental health issues in the household? So really trying to account for um, who did the Grimkeys, both the black and white Grimkeys, say were important in their lives and who were actually important in their lives just based on the evidence, right? Archibald Grimke, for instance, acted as if he didn't have this first wife who was the mother of his child. So if you were just to read 
his statements, it's like he's a single man, he's raising this daughter, where the daughter come from, oh, he had a wife, there's no talking about her, and yet she is a big piece of um, his relationship to black people. She was a white woman. Um, She sort of had this idea that her, she wasn't going to raise their daughter as being black, and then she, you know, has her mental health issues and sends the girl back to live with him. And so that's a big thing in this story, right? And yet, if you were just to read the letters of the Grimke brothers, it's as if this woman exists and then just disappears. So I think the hardest part, um, but also the most um, rewarding part, was accounting for the fact of what are people saying is happening in and what they're remembering and what they're talking about and what is actually happening based to the best of ability, what I know by the historical record. Sounds very relevant today. Yes. Which was my question, like, yes. why should we care? In other words, like, why... Does this story speak to the current moment? I think it speaks to the current moment because it's a story about how these things, slavery, enslavement, and exploitation, have legacies long after they're finished. And that they have legacies for the enslaved, they have legacies for the enslaver, they impact the way that people interact with one another. And I think it's also pertinent in terms of, you know, what are the stakes when we have interracial alliances? Is that always an er- something that uh, that works, <laughs> or is it something that that is tenuous and doesn't work? And then finally, what does it mean to be a member of the black upper class, particularly at a moment as at the end of the nineteenth century when the era is so fraught and you know real incomes are kind of stagnant, right? So what does it actually mean that the Grunke brothers made it at a moment when um, you know, the world was sort of in the state that it was around them, right? So what did, what did that actually look like? They made it, they go to Harvard, and yet segregation is on the rise and lynching is on the rise, right? What did that mean for their success? What was your research process like? Um, reading everything I could possibly get my hands on that anybody in their family ever wrote. So reading everything that Angelina Grimke, the poet writer, wrote as much as I could. Um, reading every letter as possible as I could between the Grimke sisters and um, reading the diaries as much as I could. Um, really reading everything I could about them. And then also reading everything I could by other people about them. So because they were so famous in the circles they were in, people were always talking about them. And so that was a good way to gauge kind of what was really going on as opposed to what they were saying was going on. Or also what they're saying versus what the outside world is saying about them. Um, and so I really just tried to read everything I possibly could in terms of the primary sources surrounding them. Uh, I looked at a lot of maps of the cities where they lived to figure out exactly where each of these groups of people lived. And I read a lot of secondary sources by black women historians uh, who have done you know, work on black women and enslavement and relationships with white women as well. Did you find anything surprising in the private documents that the conversations they were having in private that they were not having in public, for instance, was there anything that surprised you? Or was it pretty much all out there and, and pretty easy to decipher? It was pretty easy to decipher. I think the thing that surprised me was that Angelina uh, Wellgrimke, the young black woman who became the poet and who was very obviously queer, that historians have kind of quibbled about this and argued like, oh, that couldn't be, that's not true. Um, You can't say that she was a lesbian. And yet there's all these records of her (laughs) having relationships with women where she's talking about those relationships with women in very graphic ways. So she was already out. You're not outing her. No, 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 no. Um, She herself was somebody who talked about, and and what what is fascinating to me and somebody do a biography just of her is that she was never somebody who had a problem with her sexuality. She had a problem because her family's reaction to it was so um, 
such a violent reaction. You know, they take her out of school and they send her to another school when they find out she's having an affair with a young girl. And then she has an affair with women at that school and they take her out of that school. They put her in another school, she has an affair with another woman. Um, you know, so she's not hiding her sexuality in any way. And yet her family is very determined that this is not the way that a woman of her, black woman of her social class would behave. And so that to me was fascinating that it's in all the letters she's writing and yet historians are still questioning or up until very recently we're questioning what is her sexuality and what is her story. Where are the archives for these people? The Moreland Spingarn collection at Howard University is the best collection of the Grimke sisters. That was a lifesaver. I took three separate trips down there, uh, or two to three separate trips down there before the pandemic, and then they were very generous and scanned um, stuff for me. And then the uh, Michigan Library, the Clements Library at the University of Michigan, which has the Grimke-Weld family papers. Um, so really, those were my two major sources. And then, of course, there's been so much written about the Grimkeys. I could go into books and, and read those. Their letters, a um, lot of letters between the Grimke Keys and William Lloyd Garrison when they were in Boston. Um, so really, you know, looking at as many pieces of work that I could that were describing their own words and what they were saying about themselves. What was your writing process like? So usually I write every day. I'm one of those weirdo people who's been like that since I was like in college. So I just, I wake up and even if I don't think I should, can write anything, I write every day. So I wake up at four, I usually write from four to seven. And so that's my time just to write and work on my own stuff. So that was what I work on it. And then I mean, the pandemic was horrible, but the part of the pandemic um, for this book was I was writing it when the pandemic started. And so I was just in my house. So that really forced me to, you know, spend hours and hours doing the research and then hours and hours writing. So I really just anytime I could, I, I, I wrote. And once I put myself into a project, I really I kind of like run with it and just want to get it off my chest and out there <laughs> and get it done. So I really made a point of Every morning, four to, four to seven, woke up and wrote. Um, even if it was like I wrote five pages and then had to erase it, you know, I just set up and wrote. Writing about such a complicated issue, such as slavery, mm-hmm. um, can be traumatic. Mm-hmm. What or how were you able to care for yourself during this project? What kind of self-care mechanisms did you put in place? Yeah, I mean, my, my approach to that is that it definitely is... Um, reading the records, particularly of the brutality faced by the enslaved people in, 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 in the era that I'm talking about was very, um, you know, it takes a toll on your, on your, uh, the way you view, view the world. And yet I was always amazed by the ways in which black people continued to exist, to thrive, to have their lives, to raise their children amidst all of this uh, violence that's occurring around them. So to me, that was actually very, um, promising as I was writing this in 2019 and 2020. I was sort of having this moment of, you know, everything feels like it's going wrong. The pandemic's happening. There's all these these um, protests that are occurring. And I'm reading about a similar time and yet black people continuing to survive and thrive to me was sort of is sort of a remarkable, a remarkable thing. So I kind of didn't see it as a sad thing. I was always taken away by the breathtaking ability of black people to continue to thrive and not just survive, but also, you know, soar their way through whatever moment they're in. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. That was my conversation with Carrie Greenidge regarding her book, The Grim Keys, The Legacy of Slavery in an American Family, published by LiveWrite in November 2022. This interview was recorded at BIO's annual conference in New York on May 20th, 2023. 
To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographiesinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.